Good morning and welcome to Workplace Wisdom, your best source for labor employment law trends, thoughts, and ideas. I'm your host, Eric Clark, a partner at Thompson Hahn at Labor Employment Group. Today we have Ted Capitas. Ted is a partner at the firm Eberly, McMahon, and Capitas. Ted's practice is focused exclusively on representing plaintiff employees against their employers. I invited Ted because he seemed like the perfect person to help provide some words of wisdom about how to keep your employees out of his office. Ted, thanks for joining me today. Eric, thanks for having me. I guess I am here to, uh, against my own interests really, to perhaps put myself out of business by uh, helping you and your clients understand why people come to my office in the first place and perhaps reduce some of those instances. All right, Ted, well, I know that you have done a lot of work about how we can keep our employees out of your office. So why don't we talk about the first thing that really drives people to you? So in thinking about this, you know, you and I talked a little bit about some basic blocking and tackling that a company can do well. And if it doesn't do it well, it can lead someone who might otherwise sign a release and move on with life. It can lead to the type of bitterness that might bring someone to speak to a lawyer about it who might talk to them about their claims and realize maybe there's something there. Maybe there's a problem with the termination. And the first thing that comes to mind is just the basic bad exit process. This ought to be something that that an employer never gets wrong, but it's shocking how many times they do. And, And that is really treating someone who gets terminated without the dignity they deserve. And even if they're a bad performer, even if they have screwed up project after project, or even if they exhibit some behavior issues, when you finally terminate someone, you are handing them one of the worst days that they're going to experience in their lives. And it's important to do that, I think, in a way that makes sure that their dignity is preserved. And so, to me, what amazes me is that I see in office settings where there is no reason that the employer might otherwise have to suspect something like workplace violence, where you have people escorted out of a building in front of their coworkers. I think to me that is one of the cardinal sins of, of terminating an employee. So Ted, just to be clear, we're not talking about somebody, there's no direct evidence of, of discrimination or harassment or any of those things that we normally have. You're talking about someone who, for whatever reason, the, the company thinks they're not getting the job done in some way, uh, and they decide to part ways with that person, regardless of whatever the buildup has been to that, whether it's a performance improvement plan or whatever, uh, these are people who are giving them the, the notice on the day of termination, hey, look, uh, it's, not, it's not working out. And then at the end of that conversation, you sort of immediately ask them to leave and walk them out? Or how do you think if we're notifying somebody of, uh, of their termination and they're, we're in their office and we're giving them that notice, what should they be doing for that person? Well, obviously, you know, there are things that a company is going to want to do to safeguard itself. They're going to want to cut off access to their computer system. They're going to want to disable email. But at the termination meeting itself, I think it makes sense to do it in a way that doesn't let everybody around the employee know that he is being terminated and escorted out of the building. Terminations can take place at the end of the day or even if it's going to take place at the beginning of the day. Make sure that you are doing this in a way that doesn't create an embarrassing situation for the employee. Have a little trust that the employee who, if you, again, you got somebody who has no history of, uh, of acting out or violence or no reason to think an employee might do something rash, Give him or her some credit that you can tell that person if it's at the beginning of the day, you know, we had to make this decision. This is the decision we made. This is the reason we made it. 
Um, we'll give you to the end of the day to collect your things. We'll leave it entirely up to you if you want to say goodbye to anybody in particular. And then at the end of the day, this will be your last day. Of course, if you would like to leave earlier, that is fine too. And we can make sure we pack up your things. But do it in a way that gives some choices to the employee and gives him a chance to preserve some measure of his dignity as he walks out the door. So this is interesting because I, I mean, I personally have definitely given advice um, and was really coached very early in my career to give advice that you don't let the person stay around that day. And you know, one of, one of the problems with that person staying around, anyone who's getting let go, they're going to be upset. Uh, at a minimum, they're gonna be upset, right? As you said, it's, it's one of the worst days of their life. But I mean, from a, from a defense standpoint, from a, from a litigation mitigation standpoint, what I don't want that person doing is, is A, trying to gather additional evidence, gather witnesses as they're sitting there right then. Um, that's number one. Number two, I don't want them going around it and, and rallying other people to their cause or causing a workplace scene, which could be worse. And, and three, I mean, I think you said you can shut off their email access. And while that's true, there's still plenty of other things in the office that could be damaged. I mean, just the laptop itself could be damaged or all these other things, even if they're not uh, engaging in workplace violence per se, there, there's still plenty of other damage they can do. And, and I think all in all, don't you have to consider not just the employee's dignity, but the rest of the office's dignity? For sure. But again, I think you got to give the terminated employee a little bit of credit. If you don't have a reason to think that they're going to be a behavior problem or do some kind of damage walking out the door, to me, I rarely hear of things like that happening in most professional settings. So to me, it makes sense. I mean, I, I was we were talking offline a little bit about a, a, a case I had recently where I had an employee who had worked for a company for about 12 years, was completely non-litigious. During the termination meeting, and he was offered a pretty substantial severance, during the termination meeting, he was given a reason for his termination that didn't ring true, and he was then escorted out of the building and in a way that you know, people he had worked with for years knew he had just been fired. And that is what led him, that kind of, he was upset about that, and that led him to seek guidance and, and finally get to me. And that case resolved for um, more than four times what his initial severance was. I really believe if that termination had been done, had been done better, he never would have come to my office in the first place. So Ted, you mentioned what I think is point two, and we can we can jump to that, which I think is uh, being honest about the the reason for termination. This is one of the things you've mentioned, and and you mentioned it sort of in passing to this person. And I realize these these things can kind of work in tandem, right? I mean, so first is sort of the your exit process concern, but let's talk a little about uh, about the termination reasoning. What you mean there? Sure. And to me, this is probably the biggest pitfall and you know, one of the most uh, fruitful avenues that I have to make a case. And that is where, for whatever reason, the employer gives a reason for the termination to the employee that is just not quite true, or they don't give a reason at all. When you say it's not true, do you mean it's not true in the employee's perception or not true and the employer knows it's not true? Well, I guess it could be either, but there might be a lot of reasons why uh, an employer might not give the employee a genuine reason or the, the actual reason for why he's being terminated. It may be as simple as, as wanting to spare the employee's feelings. You know, saying, instead of saying uh, we had X, Y, and Z performance problem, telling somebody it just wasn't a good fit or giving some other reason that just isn't quite true. 
And as you well know, what that does is you've got a, a stated reason for termination that the employer has to stick with when they're defending a case. And if it's not true, there's plenty of room for a plaintiff's attorney to attack that reason. And if it's not true, it becomes pretty easy to attack. Yeah, so when I, you know, I often counsel companies through the termination process. And I would say with a pretty high degree of certainty, after spending about 25 minutes with the client, I can tell you who is likely to go to an attorney before we even give them the exit process or before we give them the reason for termination, just by having that, that process, that back and forth. And so, you know, we, there, there are certainly times that we craft the least offensive message we can for that person to receive that is based overall on the truth. Like for instance, not a good fit uh, is one of those things that, that I feel like encompasses a broad range of things. And it can include, you're not a good fit because you had these three performance deficiencies. But it's also, you're not a good fit is a better statement than we just don't think you're smart enough or hardworking enough to do this job. And so how, how, do you, how do you expect employers to manage the difficulty of not wanting to hurt somebody's feelings, which is a lot of what we talked about in the bad exit process, with, with also being honest about the reason for termination when somebody just isn't a very good employee? Yeah, and I think maybe this comes back to, again, giving the employee a little bit of credit if they have been underperforming or if they have been not up to certain aspects of their job, they know that. They know where their weaknesses are. People are, everybody's nervous about their own weaknesses. And I, I think it is much better to simply be frank with the employee and tell them what really is at the heart of the matter. Because if you don't, you're going to give them the impression that you're giving them a reason that just isn't true. And if they don't believe that the reason is true, that is going to raise questions in their mind. And they're going to wonder to themselves, you know, if they, they say they're terminating me for X reason, and I know in my heart that's not true, well, then what's the real reason they're terminating me? If I know it's that, if, if it's not that, well, what is it? Is it because I raised complaints about something? Is it because I'm in a particular protected classification? Is it because I just recently returned from leave? Other questions will come into their mind. Whereas if I think you tell them, what really is, if you explain what really is at the heart of the decision. And of course, from your perspective, you don't want to have this become a debate. You don't want to act like there's a, uh, a room to negotiate or dispute the reason for termination. You want to make sure that it's communicated as a final decision. But if the truth is explained to them, I think they are much more likely to understand it and they're much more likely to sign that release that you want them to sign and move on with life. As usual, Ted, I think we agree on the core issue here, which is definitely tell the truth. You know, from my perspective, uh, and, and really it's about summary judgment, which you mentioned, uh, I do not want the employer to give a false reason. A false reason is much worse than no reason at all, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I do think, um, you know, I see too many employees that are too upset if the employer gives sort of too harsh of an explanation on the way out the door. From my perspective, that seems as likely to drive them to you else and so it's but it is this balancing line I mean we're, you know we're balancing between you know the the saving their dignity with the avoiding the bad exit process but on the other hand being truthful to them on the way out the door but why don't we talk about some of these other things that you have sort of specific experiences of of people coming to your office and, and why they showed up there yeah and so just kind of I looked through a recent list of matters that I had and, and thought to myself why did this particular employee come to see me in the first place. And some of them are gonna be a little bit unavoidable. A lot of my clients are high enough up on the food chain 
that they have a level of sophistication that they're just going to go to a lawyer to review any kind of release agreement that they're presented. Now, the flip side of that is sometimes they're presented with a release that is so lengthy and perhaps overly lawyered, you get a a single-spaced 13-page release and someone's going to say, immediately react, wow, I really need a lawyer to take a look at this because even though I'm sophisticated, I don't understand it. I do believe a fully effective release can be done in uh, less than four pages and 12-point font. But that aside, I mean, I think that, you know, I have seen, you know, over the years, there's been a lot of litigation over uh, the effectiveness of releases. In fact, I have litigated cases where uh, releases drafted by other, by other firms or, or in-house counsel later been litigated as ineffective. And so I think there's a lot of, especially for higher level executives, where you're talking about equity issues and, and sort of various stock option issues that are all baked in there. Uh, a lot of times those, are, those necessarily are more complex. And, and I, I think I agree that, that people who are, who are in the C-suite uh, or somebody like that, uh, they, they are much more likely to go to a lawyer, in part because their agreements are going to be more complex, and in part because they, they usually can afford it more, and they're more willing to spend the money to have you review an agreement, even if they have no intention of entering into litigation. For sure. Another one, uh, it seems self-explanatory, but it's amazing how many times I see it. Someone who has just returned from or is about to go on medical leave, I am sure you, you and your clients will say that has nothing whatsoever to do with the reason for termination, but it certainly raises questions in the eyes of the employee. Yeah, the things that hear from time to time is we, we're doing a reduction of force, um, and this person has been out for three months. Obviously, in terms of who I can do without, that seems like somebody who's easiest to do without. And that, that's not an acceptable answer from my standpoint, something I, I routinely would counsel clients against doing. I think the other one uh, that I see quite a bit is, I'll call it the unfair PIP. And maybe it's not, maybe you've got a good reason to terminate the employee. Maybe it's because just for whatever reason, the, the relationship is bad. Maybe it just isn't actually, as we talked about before, maybe it really isn't a good fit. But the employer in an overzealous effort to document a reason for termination creates a PIP. And the PIP might contain something like subjective goals or unachievable goals. And the PIP is being put in place not really for the purpose of, imp- of improving the employee's performance, but for the sake of documenting. And I, I would say that if you're doing a PIP for the sake of documenting as opposed to actually improving performance, don't do it. Because that, uh, I think, uh, drives some suspicion and resentment from the employee and it frankly gives me something to attack if you've got things in a PIP that look um, or that I can, can make clear are disingenuous. On the other hand, if, if somebody has been fired for poor performance, I have to imagine one of the first questions out of your mouth in a deposition is, did you put this person on a performance improvement plan? And if you haven't, haven't you done that for other employees before? If you're and, suggesting and that why I'm why is my employer why is my client <laughs> different? If you're suggesting that I'm trying to have it both ways here, Eric, <laughs> right. um, you're probably right about that. Yeah, I will say from a from a performance improvement plan standpoint, I I often help with performance improvement plans. I mean, it's one of the things we do because I think it's a it's a critical piece. In, and it's funny you, you sort of mentioned two things there: subjective goals as well as unachievable goals. It, you know, on, on the unachievable piece, what I think is funny about that is. The unachievable ones maybe are unachievable sometimes 
to the employee, and maybe that's part of the problem. That employee can't achieve those goals, and that's really the expectation for the position. But subjective goals are, are allowed. I mean, they can be subjective because especially somebody who's in a leadership position, that person is not necessarily going to be the jobs aren't always objective. The results aren't always objective results. They can be they can be very subjective, especially over a 90-day period or 120-day period, which a PIP might be. And for sure, yes, yeah, subjective goals are permitted. But to me, and I think to uh, a lot of employees who end up uh, being terminated, they feel like they are ripe for scrutiny. They feel squishy to the employee. Then to me, that is something that uh, that should be scrutinized. And on the the unachievable goals, look, if you've got someone who uh, is, let's say they're in a sales position, and the goal that you're setting for them is simply to measure up to what other competently performing sales professionals are achieving, fine. But if you have a situation where you just, you know, you're you're looking to terminate someone and you, you set a sales goal that exceeds what other employees, uh, other sales professionals you have in your organization are, are doing, that is going to be a problem. That's going to drive somebody to my door. I imagine we could spend all day talking about PIP. Let's move on to, uh, to the next one. What other things drive people to your door? So uh, I'm going to skip one here and just go to I'm being scapegoated because I've seen this a couple times recently. You have a team project. Maybe it's some sort of an IT project, implementation of software or something like that. And you've got 10, 15 people on a team to implement this huge software project and it doesn't go well. It ends up costing much more or taking much longer than it was supposed to and one particular person is fired because of it. Maybe it is the most senior person on that team, the oldest person on that team. Maybe it's the only female, whatever it might be. But where you single out someone and they they sort of take the fall for the failure of a, a team project, that is, uh, I, I've had numerous people come to me somewhat recently about that issue. Interesting. General fairness issues. It seems like I'm the only one being blamed, differentiated from everyone else. Along those same lines, you know, I think obviously consistency is important. You know, you have an employee who committed some infraction and they know someone, they know of someone, even if it's not in their department, even if they're not similarly situated. They know of someone who committed the same infraction or did something that they view as worse, and, and that other person was not fired, of course. They are more, much more likely to come see me. And, of course, someone who complains about something. Even if it's not protected activity, an employee who, who complains about something that occurs in the workplace, maybe they just personally take objection to it, maybe they feel it's unethical or shady in some way, and they feel those complaints were ignored, certainly uh, a termination somewhat close in time to those complaints is going to potentially lead them to believe that their complaint had something to do with it. So that's, I think, a reason that whatever an employee's complaint might be to make sure that they feel like they're heard with their complaint. Yes, so this is an interesting one. We'll take we'll take a minute here because on the one hand, you have complaints that are protected activity, right? We we all know that you cannot engage in unlawful retaliation against that person who's, who's alleged gender discrimination or harassment in good faith belief. So let's put those to the side for a moment. And one thing you hear from a lot of employers is, hey, this is at will employment. What they have complained about is not protected activity. They've complained that they're sitting too close to this person or they're sitting too far away from something else or, or there's someone who frankly complains a lot 
which is not an unusual situation in the workplace. We, we all know those, those situations exist. And it's probably not crazy that some employers, if they had the option, would choose to, to work with fewer of those people who are frequent complainers about non-protected activity. And so what you're saying is those complaints, even when they're not necessarily protected activity, still drive people to your door. For sure. And obviously, you know, you've got the extreme example of the serial complainer who complains about everything, including how far they are from the coffee maker. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's a lot of complaints. Even I, as a lawyer, have to give some real thought to, is this or is this not protected activity? And even if it's not, you know, you have situations where an employee might be complaining about something that could implicate safety considerations, environmental considerations, whatever it might be. And if those complaints are ignored, that is going to make an employee think, they didn't take my complaint seriously, they weren't happy about the fact that I complained, and then I got terminated. So I would say an employee is a lot less likely to come running to me if they feel like they complained about something and it was dealt with, it was explained to them, they at least felt heard, and their complaint was addressed in some way, even if that complaint turns out to be illegitimate. Yeah, I mean, and I'll tell you, the, the way that I see this happen... Uh, a fair bit where I see, where I see some demand letters that come in are employees who are who have a personality conflict with with somebody nearby and they complain about that person they complain about that person and the vast majority of these complaints are not protected activity and so what happens from an employer standpoint is they're sort of lulled into they're, they're lulled into sleep from not protected not protected not protected and and then perhaps the thirteenth time that person has complained about someone maybe that might be protected activity. And they sort of treat them all with the same level of disdain or eye-rolling because it's, it's all this long-term disagreement between the parties. And, and inevitably, the, the one and only complaint that the jury really hears about is the one that, that maybe, theoretically, was protected activity. Sure, sure. And that kind of, again, I don't want to talk about the serial complainer, but I think the important thing that we agree upon is that all, all complaints ought to be heard and taken seriously by the employer and where that happens you can't go wrong mm-hmm. it's worth the investment of time and of course if you've got the serial complainer that's a completely different gotcha all right what's next what else can our uh, listeners learn from you the reduction in force when it seems like it's really not a reduction in force perhaps there is a reorganization or someone is told that there's a reduction in force but they keep in touch with people where they used to work and they realize that either they've been replaced, they've been replaced by two people, or there are the same number of people in the organization as before they were terminated. I, I recently had a very productive case with those facts where I- Very productive case. That is plaintiff's code word for very lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, this was a case where I brought the CFO in and, and um, deposed him over a, a couple of hours and, and talked about how much the company was spending in payroll during the period right before the supposed reduction in force and during the period after. So I think a lot of employees can see the writing on the wall and where they're told they're terminated in a reduction in force and, and they know that ended up not being the case within a span of you know four or six months, it's going to raise questions in their mind. Okay. Uh, understood. The, the reduction in force word, it, it can be thrown around too easily at times. You know, a, a legitimate reduction in force with a business even if they're not suffering from a downturn necessarily, but maybe they're not as profitable as they as they would be expected to be, or their investors would expect them to be, um, you know, or they're they're overstaffed relative to the market. Those are those are legitimate things. But what I always encourage people to do, and, and 
I imagine that you would find this difficult when you see it, is very good documentation about why they're engaging the direction of force and the level that each group needs to, to go down in advance of they're actually being the person selected. No question. And that, that documentation can be a check, a protective measure for an employer because if you're really unable to document that and you're really unable to show we're trying to get from spending this much on payroll to that much on payroll, if you can't show that, well, this isn't a reduction in force and perhaps there's a different reason you're terminating the employee. Well, my goal is to make things less productive for you, Ted. There you go. <laughs> um, and, and along those lines, in the reduction in force context, when someone then, if they're documenting this properly, they're going to give, they're going to submit that uh, Older Workers Benefit Protection Act paperwork, yes. the disclosures. That's only if we're giving them a release in conjunction with it, yes. And they're going to submit the disclosures, and when the employee sees on the right side of the column or the left side of the column, employees retained, and they've got this lengthy list of, you know, let's call it 50 people, and on the, the right side of the column are the people terminated, and there is just one or two. Um, they realize they're going to feel much more like they have been singled out. So, uh, and that this really isn't a reduction in force. So I guess the moral of the story is only tell somebody they're terminated in a reduction in force if it's actually a reduction in force. Yeah, one thing I'll add to the, the little bits of workplace wisdom here. Uh, when you're doing a reduction in force, I mean, there's sometimes an incentive. You know, one of the things you'll give to folks is outplacement assistance, or you'll, you'll, you'll do some kind of training for them on how to write resumes, uh, which are all great things and, and things I would encourage people to do. What I would discourage you from doing is trying to do some cost savings where you get all of those folks together in the room together and give them simultaneous training. One of the largest cases I ended up defending uh, in my career happened to be where there were about uh, 150 people in a room together who were being simultaneously trained. And by looking around the room, they, not not, our, not my client, but they referred to it as the senior citizens meeting. Uh, <laughs> and they, they started to believe that maybe there was an age bias in the selection process. Imagine that. Uh, and that led to a very large piece of litigation against one of my clients. Now, I wasn't involved in orchestrating that, of course, but definitely was something that drove them to a plaintiff's office. Another one that's kind of near and dear to my heart because it just drives me crazy every time I see it, and that is when someone has a non-compete that is unnecessarily broad or unnecessary altogether. It's amazing to me how many times I see someone who is being paid hourly or being paid something less than six figures and, and someone who doesn't really have customer contact, that isn't owning a customer relationship, and that employee has a non-compete. And that person, if they come to me with a non-compete, because they're looking for their next job and they're worried about complying with the non-compete, that is going to lead to other conversations about their termination. So I think it's, it's really important for employers to take a long, hard look at when they want to sign somebody up to a non-compete if it's really, truly necessary. Because if it's not, it's one more reason for someone to go see a lawyer. Ted, uh, it's a good point. I mean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, sort of what happens when people go see a lawyer. And, and again, the, the situation we're talking about here isn't someone who has direct evidence of discrimination or harassment or any of those things. Right. Uh, and so the, the listeners may be asking, well, look, what, what's the downside? And in fact, you know, the law for uh, a severance agreement actually instructs us to, to make people go see a lawyer or to encourage them to go see a lawyer, uh, to tell them they have the right to see a lawyer. And the, the question may be, well, look, what's, what's the downside? I've, I've done everything right here. I don't care if they're mad on the way out the door. Maybe I was mad when I sent them out the door. Maybe they did something that upset me. What types of things happen when a person shows up in your office and maybe the termination was legitimate? 
that certainly happens. I mean, I get a lot of people that come to me with um, concerns that uh, end up not being something that, that we can really move forward with. However, I really take time to speak with my clients and learn about what it is they're doing and what their jobs are. And I can't tell you how many times someone will come to me about how they've been treated, what they perhaps wrongly perceive as a hostile work environment. And in speaking with them about their job, I discover that they are paid on a salary basis and happen to do a lot of, um, a lot of work from home, put in really long days, and perhaps shouldn't have been exempt in the first place. I've brought a lot of Fair Labor Standards Act claims and I would say it, something north of 90% of them did not come to me as Fair Labor Standards Act claims. They, complained about some, they were complaining about something else, but spending time with them in my office, I realized, hey, this person has been misclassified, and there's a lot of hours that they put in that they haven't been paid for. Yeah, I mean, we sometimes used to refer those as like tag-along claims, but it seems the, especially in the last 10 years or so, the Fair Labor Standards Act claims have really become the leader, not, not the tagline necessarily, really significant driver. And those are, you know, for, for someone who, for a plaintiff's lawyer, I, I will, I'm always happy to see a Fair Labor Standards Act claim, either as what ends up being the sole claim or paired with uh, other claims of perhaps retaliation or discrimination, because I know from a leverage standpoint, it helps me a great deal and it makes life difficult for the employer. Right, and one of the reasons for that is because if you win, even even if there was a single hour of overtime that uh, that was improperly compensated or failed to be compensated, um, that can lead to all of your fees being paid for the entire for the entire lawsuit. That is not lost on me, Eric. <laughs> right, uh, so, I'm sure, so. I'm sure it's not. But it also should not be lost on uh, on our listeners, on my clients, on the employers that are out there, because it's significant to them that they can win 98% of the case, uh, win, win the majority of it, and, and, and only end up paying the employee um, you know, $20 for the, for the lost overtime, but still be stuck paying Ted's outrageous and outlandish legal fees. There you go. Well, and yeah, no, misclassification can be costly, and I think that also exists it, not only in the Fair Labor Standards Act context, but also uh, employee independent contractor context, where you know someone is is uh, treated as an independent contractor and at the end of the day to me you know, you know we, there are tests out there to analyze whether someone is properly an independent contractor but the, the proper question at the end of the day is who does this person work for do they work for themselves or do they work for the employer and those misclassification mistakes can be costly as well well listen ted i, I think we're going to leave it there i really appreciate you coming in today and i look forward to talking to you again been a pleasure thanks eric Thank you for listening to Workplace Wisdom. This is your host, Eric Clark. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out at eric.clark at thompsonhine.com. Thank you.